You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Dario Maestropieri, who is a professor of comparative human development at the University of Chicago, also the author of a couple of books. His first book was Machiavellian Intelligence, How Rhesus Macaques and Humans Have Conquered the World. Another book of yours is Games, Primates, Play, an Undercover Investigation into the Evolution and Economics of Human Relationships. So Dario, first of all, welcome. Glad you could join me today. Pleasure to be here. I want to start with a really big picture question, which is, you know, I remember this story about how Bill Hamilton met Robert Axelrod at the University of Michigan at some faculty event. And it was at that moment when they discovered that economics and biology had been pursuing the same questions and coming up with similar answers for 30 years. And John Maynard Smith and, you know, was coming up with what was essentially the Nash equilibrium in biology. And even though they evolved separately, they wound up converging and now we're interbreeding. And in your work, you flip back and forth between discussions of economics and of evolutionary biology. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about that, like the cross-pollination between these two disciplines. How has that affected your work? How do you make sense of these different disciplines? Does it even make sense to talk about them as, as separate disciplines at this point? Or is this really a new common shared set of tools and understandings? So you mentioned Bill Hamilton meeting Robert Axelrod and talking about economics and biology in the 70s. You mentioned John Minor Smith. Those were exciting times for the behavioral sciences. There was another very important person that you didn't mention. His name was Robert Trevers, an evolutionary biologist who realized how important the economics approach was for the understanding of both animal and human behavior. So he was the one who really applied, for example, cost-benefit analysis to the study of behavior. So he's the one who really put it all into practice. He showed everybody else how you could do an evolutionary analysis of behavior that was informed by economic principles. And so his impact on the field was was amazing. Fast forward 50 years, it's now relatively well established that behavioral economists and evolutionary biologists ask some of the same questions. There's some communication and some cross-fertilization, maybe not as much as you would like to see. As far as I'm concerned, I describe myself as a behavioral scientist. I've always been interested in uh, understanding human behavior, but instead of taking a direct approach and going to college to study psychology or economics or sociology, I decided to take a more indirect approach, study biology first. I had some very broad questions about life that I thought biology would help me answer first. And then from evolutionary biology, I then decided to study animal behavior, trying to understand again, if there were some similarities, some commonalities, both in the principles and and in the data that we could apply to humans. So I did that for three decades, at least. I studied animal behavior, and particularly the behavior of non-human primates, monkeys and apes. And then at some point I felt that I was ready to move on to humans. And so I've been doing human research for more than 20 years since I moved to the University of Chicago. And for a while I was doing both animal and human research. Now I'm doing only human research. And in my teaching, I also try to incorporate the principles of not just biology and psychology, but other disciplines as well. So a few years ago, right after I published actually that book, Games, Primates, Play, I developed a course, a new course called Evolution and Economics of Human Behavior, where I basically apply game theory and cost-benefit analysis to many aspects of human behavior, including everyday type human behavior. And that course has become very popular. Uh, It kind of filled a niche that had remained empty. Yeah. So I think that in biology, the use of these economic models has become quite common, but the reverse isn't 
necessarily true, right? So in economics, we still start with this model of human rationality, which is very abstract, right? And of course, you mentioned Gary Becker and his discussion of things like the family. And those models, they seem to be focused, first of all, on financial or economic benefit. And they also assume that humans are kind of engaging in more or less continuous calculation. So when you teach human behavior, do you think that what you're doing is different, unique? Do you think that there's just sort of a, a delay here? In, I mean, even in behavioral economics, the use of biology or biological references or source material is still relatively rare. What accounts for that? You mentioned early in your career when you submitted articles around even primate behavior, there was some resistance because primates were considered to be special and separate. And now I think that's more or less been overcome. And there's a continuity between primates and, and fruit flies in the biology world. But in the economics world, do you think economics is still resisting this notion of biologically evolved algorithms or objective functions that are different from financial maximization? I don't think there is an active resistance to biology. There's a general issue that interdisciplinary research is always challenging. So many people welcome it, think it's important, but when it comes to actually doing it in practice or becoming familiar with different bodies of literature, so knowing not just what your peers in your field are doing, but taking the time to read and understand what other scientists are doing in different fields, it requires a little effort, a little open-mindedness. Some people just don't make the effort or they haven't discovered, for example, that the work done by other scientists in other disciplines is as relevant to their own. There's a little bit of, as you know, territoriality, especially in, in academia where scholars sometimes patrol the boundaries of their field and they feel that if these boundaries are less rigid, that their own field and maybe their own career stands to lose something. So there are historical, traditional, cultural factors, but I wouldn't say that there is a strong theoretical opposition or resistance. I think there are many parallels, many points of contact. So you mentioned rationality. I know that sometimes behavioral economists promote the view that human beings are not as rational as we once thought. I kind of disagree with that. I mean, it depends on the perspective. First of all, how you define rationality. The way I define rationality is engaging in behaviors where the, the benefits of the behavior outweigh the cost. So to me, that's rational behavior. So there is rationality in nature because natural selection tends to produce behaviors in animals and in humans, which maximize the benefits and minimize the costs. So natural selection is an agent of rationality. Now the issue is what is the currency, for example, for these benefits and costs? That's where there is a, a little bit of separation between the work of evolutionary biologists and that of behavioral economists. Let me start with evolutionary biologists. Evolutionary biologists typically use fitness as a currency, where fitness is defined as the effect that certain behaviors have on survival and reproductive success. They can be positive or negative. So you can study all kinds of different behaviors and using this currency of fitness essentially allows you to compare behaviors that are very different from one another to use the same theory, essentially the same models. Economists also use a common currency, but that's utility instead of fitness. And I think the definition of rationality is similar. So I think human behavior is viewed as rational when human beings make decisions so as to maximize their utility. There are, of course, exceptions. So to say that an animal or human being is rational does not mean that 100% of what they do all the time in all contexts is rational. Just like many other things in biology and, and also in the human sciences, it's a statistical concept. It's a matter of probability. So natural selection itself is a probabilistic concept. So natural selection produces adaptive behavior on average in general, but that doesn't mean that every individual born on this planet is always a hundred percent adapted to the environment. So there are exceptions and behavioral economists have made the important contribution of showing 
exceptions, but by and large, people are rational and so are animals. So it's important to keep that in mind. And also then you'll be able to appreciate the deviations from rationality. Well, the subject matter of both of your books is probably most relevant to business school students. Here at Berkeley, we teach accounting and finance and all that sort of thing. But probably the most popular course that we offer is one on power and politics. And people are always interested in trying to figure out how to advance their careers and and how to become more successful within organizations. And you're both of your books, you talk about this and you talk about the similarities between the way human primates navigate their organizational terrain and the way in which other primates kind of navigate their organizational terrain. And although we are different in many ways, we're very, very similar. And so one of the things that you spend a lot of time on is this discussion of dominance and how important it is and how pervasive it is and how at a subconscious level, we're always aware to some degree of our relative position in some kind of pecking order when we encounter other people. And, and I love how you began the book with this simple series of anecdotes about going into the elevator. And I remember, I, I think it was Richard Wrangham who said, if you put a bunch of chimpanzees on a plane from East Coast to West Coast, there wouldn't be any left alive by the time you made it to the other coast. We would presumably, we're all still alive, but we're still kind of sorting ourselves in, in some way. Could you talk a bit about this dominance? Because my understanding of the way in which humans are, are a little bit different from primates is that with most primates within the community, it's very, very clear the pecking order is transitive. You've got your alpha and so on and so forth all the way down. Whereas humans, you could be dominant when you're in the, in the office or you know dominant home and then you're subordinate when you get to the office and you've got all these kind of overlapping circles that your relative position within these circles is, is constantly fluctuating. So it's not really something that lives within you, but it's all, it's all relational, right? I think that's a big part of your message. Yes. So first of all, let's define dominance so that we make sure we're all on the same page. Dominance can manifest itself in different ways, but if you look at human couples, for example, husbands and wives or pairs of friends, anybody, dominance can be operationalized in terms of decisional power. So who makes the decisions? In every well-established, stable, long-term couple, there's never a 50-50 balance in terms of who makes the decision. There's always one individual who tends to have more influence on the decision-making process. This might not be true at the beginning when two people start dating, but after a while, particularly if they live together. So the individual who has the potential to make all the decision or makes the decisions more often than the other is what we call the dominant. Again, that doesn't mean that the dominant individual makes the decisions 100% of the time, but he has the potential to do that. But many times he has no interest in making the decision, so he will let the other one do it. But probabilistically, statistically, we can define dominance as an individual who has power over another one, for example, in terms of decision-making. Dominance is not a human invention. It's quite common in other animals, particularly non-human primates. There are three key ingredients that explain why dominance exists and why it has evolved. One is sociality. So you need to have a highly social species where individuals live together as members of the same group for extended periods of time. Solitary species in which animals live by and large on their own and they encounter others. So when, it, when the time comes for mating, usually don't develop dominance. It's not necessary. So sociality is a key. The second element is competition. So there has to be intense competition for resources within that species, within that group. Competition varies in different species. And the way animals compete with each other also varies. For example, there are animals that live in groups, but they mostly have a vegetarian diet, like zebras and horses or animals that feed on leaves. They do compete for this kind of food, but it would make no sense to compete directly and aggressively. What is the point of attacking another animal every time he gets close to leaves or, or a patch of grass? There's so much there's an abundance of resources that makes this aggressive type of competition simply not cost-effective. There's still a pecking order, right, among 
horses. I, I ride horses, and there's certainly a pecking order when they're left alone in the, in the pasture. Yeah, there is. But by and large, hierarchies among herbivores are much weaker than those among animals that feed on, on meat or fruit. So the way herbivores compete with each other is simply to eat as much as the food uh, as they can. So that's why if you look at a bunch of cows on, on a pasture, you know, they all pretty much mind their own business and they just try to eat as much as possible. It would not be cost effective from them to attack any other cow that comes too close to them. They don't do it. Animals instead that feed on meat or fruit can gain significantly by displacing other animals that come too close to the food that they're eating. In other words, the difference is that the resource, the food that they're competing for can be monopolized. And so others can be excluded. So that leads to potentially aggression and dominance as a way to deal with aggression. So that the second ingredient is competition and the way it expresses itself. The third ingredient is that relationships and group life in general must be valuable to all individuals. So there must be a reason why these individuals live with others. Otherwise they will be on their own. They might do it for ecological reasons because they need um, cooperative defense, protection against predators. The bottom line is that they need each other and they cannot fight with each other constantly because otherwise competition would lead to constant fighting. Fighting has cost. There is risk of injury, death, and damage to valuable relationships. So dominance is a mechanism that has evolved in species that are highly competitive, very social, potentially aggressive, to reduce the costs of fighting. So to avoid the situations where individuals who need each other, who need to live together, they need to cooperate for some reason, to avoid the situation in which they would fight constantly with each other, dominance has evolved so that whenever there is a situation in which two individuals want the same thing, but there's only enough for one, or they have different decisions they want to make about something, then one individual wins, the other one loses, but there is no bloodshedding. So the costs of fighting are reduced or eliminated. So this is basically the theory. And game theory is really instrumental to understand why in many cases, two individuals who to meet and they compete and they want the same thing. In some cases, they're happy to just exchange signals and tell each other, I'm dominant, I'm subordinate, you can have this, or I want it, I'm going to get it. And in other cases, instead, they are willing to put up a fight. So game theory tells us when competitive encounters are likely to escalate to fighting and when this instead is not to be expected. So most boxing matches would end before they started, right? So the two boxers would enter the ring that size each other up and say, yeah, you know what? You're probably going to win. So I'm going to walk away. I mean, it's kind of like in, in lawsuits. Most lawsuits are settled because it's kind of clear ahead of time what the outcome would be if you go to court. And so it would really be wealth destroying if these parties decided to fight, because regardless of who won, the pie would presumably have shrunk to a point where the fight was not worth it. That's sort of classic hawk dove uh, game in economics. Right. So as you know, the main issue with behavior, behaving in a cost-effective, advantageous way, but also understanding the behavior of others is prediction. Behavior is highly variable. So how do you predict what others will do so that you make the, the best decision in that context? So one way to, to make prediction is to communicate. One way to predict what others will do is to engage in an exchange of signals. So animals and humans do this with each other. And one of the things that they communicate is their motivation. So how motivated are you to fight for this? As opposed to, I do care a little bit about it, but not as much as to engage in a fight. Or if you were to engage in a fight, how powerful would you be? How strong are you? I mean, this is something that can be assessed visually, but sometimes visual assessment is not enough. And so there has to be something additional, which is, for example, threatening behavior. So to convey information that an animal is highly motivated to fight, animals engage in threats. It's essentially communication of a particular level of motivation. Of course, the fact that animals communicate threats implies and threats are relatively low cost signals, implies the fact that animals can bluff. 
So they can pretend that they are highly motivated to fight when in fact they don't want to fight. But sometimes, as you know, just like in a poker game, bluffs work because if the opponent doesn't have good cards in his hands, then he'll just take what the other is communicating at face value. So a lot of contests are resolved by bluffing, essentially. This is true in, in animals as well as in humans. Well, you mentioned that a lot of divorces seem to be triggered by trivial conflicts and oftentimes violent interactions between people are triggered by what seem to be trivial conflicts, right? So I remember when uh, I lived in Philadelphia, there was a famous case of a guy who murdered a graduate student because the graduate student had looked him in the eye, right? They interviewed him, the murderer afterwards, and they said, well, why did you kill this guy? And he said, well, he was looking me in the eye. And, and to a normal person, that might seem like insufficient cause for the death penalty. But you argue that these status conflicts are really the, the meat and potatoes of human interaction, that these things may look trivial, but in fact, they are about the most important thing, which is our status with each other and the ability to control the, the relationship. Exactly. So we know that many married couples squabble and, and argue and, and have little daily fights about this and that. And you could say, oh, what they argue about is trivial. So that maybe they shouldn't do that. In some sense, it is trivial because what they're arguing about is something that it's not worth an argument. But in some other sense, it is not trivial because what they're arguing about is power, is dominance. So if a couple, say, has been together for 30 years and there's a clear dominance relationship established between, say, a man and a woman or two men or two women or whatever, the value of this dominance is that it is consistent over time. Dominance is helpful and beneficial because it makes interactions predictable. The outcome is always probabilistically at least predictable. If, however, dominance were challenged, if, however, the power that one individual has over the other was challenged or questioned by the other, then uh, the challenge is not about what triggered the fight, but it's about the whole relationship. It's about the future. So if a couple will stay together another 20 years, that fight is not about what they're fighting about, but it's about the next 20 years of the relationship. So imagine that that little fight leads to a reversal of dominance such that the individual who was previously dominant becomes subordinate and vice versa with the other. So that little fight has the potential to change permanently the dynamic of the interaction for the next 20 years. That's huge. So that's why every little fight is not so trivial because it reinforces a status quo, which, you know, might last decades into the future. So that's what animals fight about. Not this or that, but their ability to influence future outcomes. Right. And so being subordinate can sometimes be preferred to being in a situation where the hierarchy is unsettled. I mean, the pie is largest when there's sort of established hierarchy where everyone kind of knows who's in charge. I can see why that would be beneficial to the dominant, but why would that be beneficial to, say, the subordinate? So dominance has evolved. It's stable. It doesn't disappear from one day to the next. Because at the level of two individuals, dominance is beneficial to both the dominant and to the subordinate. So let's see, what are the benefits? Well, the dominant individual obviously benefits because he or she gets what, what he or she wants. So he or she makes the decision. So if they're fighting over money or other resources, ownership of goods, so the dominant individual will get whatever the fight is about. What does the other individual get? It does not get what the fight is about. However, the benefit of the individual is that essentially he or she cuts their losses. So game theory tells us that when two individuals engage in a contest based on their individual characteristics, if they're big or small, strong or weak, highly motivated or not so motivated, both individuals can estimate if there is a fight, who the winner will be. So if the subordinate individual is in a position of inferiority because it's weaker, less motivated, less strong, the estimate that this individual can win a fight is very low. 
So there's no point in engaging in the fight. So the benefit of dominance to a subordinate is cutting losses, essentially. Avoid a fight in which there is a very high probability that you will emerge as the loser. So now the question arises, okay, so it seems that in the short term, accepting this dominance is beneficial to the subordinate, but the subordinate doesn't get what he or she wants or needs. So is this beneficial also in the long term? So if somebody is a chronic subordinate, that I think is less beneficial. So the idea of being subordinate in a relationship is essentially, it's a transient condition. So you find yourself in a situation where you don't have the ammunition right at that moment to win a fight. So the best strategy is to avoid the fight. The idea is that as you avoid fights, you accumulate ammunition. <laughs> so you get stronger, you get more socially competent, you make alliances. And one day when you have more ammunition, you will challenge the dominant and you will try to become dominant yourself. So that's the adaptiveness of dominance and subordination. So subordination is an adaptive short-term strategy that simply acknowledges a weakness and the fact that if that individual engaged in a fight with a high probability, that individual would lose. And so subordination or low status in a hierarchy would allow that individual to grow stronger, to make alliances so that one day that individual will be able to challenge the other and gain status or become dominant. If subordination becomes a chronic situation where individuals become depressed and they never even attempt or consider changing the status quo, in that case, I would argue that is not adaptive. It's not beneficial. But isn't there a positive feedback loop? Because those who are in a dominant position will typically be able to procure more resources and that will make them stronger. And those who are in a subordinate position are deprived of resources. So they're going to tend to either stay weak or even get weaker. And that this begins at the moment of birth, right? You describe some species where you have twins and, and the twins immediately start fighting from the, the moment that they're born. So doesn't the positive feedback loop make it so that early status position is kind of more likely to persist and it's going to be intergenerational. So there's a lot of evidence that children of high status parents tend to be high status themselves because they, they get more resources which makes them stronger and perhaps they learn what the strategies are for maintaining dominance and so forth? Yes and no. It depends on how dominance is established and maintained. So let's say if in animals, the main factor is physical strength, then a dominance can be stable if animals remain, the differences in strength between two animals, let's say, remain consistent during their lifetime. But that's not necessarily the case. For example, one animal might get sick and become very weak and lose weight. So that will be a situation where the other animal who was previously subordinate might take advantage of this weakness to challenge the dominant and become dominant. If uh, physical strength is not the main issue, but political alliances is the main issue, then uh, yes, of course, people who are born with a strong network of support and family alliances are likely to retain these alliances, but nothing, at least in theory, prevents others from making their own alliances, from joining a party, for example, with very powerful individuals who will help them. So the individual characteristics can change over time, but also the environment can change over time. So dominance also depends on the surrounding environment. So if the environment changes dramatically, that might change also the outcome of interactions between individuals. So yes, those who start with an advantage are likely to retain, but that's not necessarily the case. Well, one example that I gave is health. If you lose your health, you find yourself in a position of a weakness, or if something happens in, in your life such that you lose all your political alliances, or if you lose the family members who were the main source of support, for example, in some families, especially in the past, this was the father. So children born to very rich parents sometimes lost their father early in their life and therefore also lost all the political social support that they had. And as a result, they experienced a major drop in their social status. Now, one of the chapters of your book is about nepotism, or I think the, the title is that, you know, we're all mafiosi. 
And it's not just nepotism, it's also patronage and, and clientage, and which I guess with humans, it's we have the ability to create these artificial families. And in ancient Rome, you could adopt people who are older than yourself in order to perpetuate your, your legacy and so forth. And when I was reading about the recommendation system in Italy, I mean, I always knew that this sort of went on in you know, a lot of different countries, but it's really quite amazing the persistence of these patronage networks and how they seem to resist any efforts to eliminate them. So, you know, the United States certainly is not lacking any of these things. We do it all, but there seems to be a matter of degree across different societies. So how is it that these patronage systems and nepotism, how do these things continue to persist in spite of all the different efforts that we've made to eliminate them? Well, the existence and persistence of nepotism sometimes at the expense of the community in general. It's a classical case of a situation where the interests of the individuals or of a small group of individuals are pitched against the interests of the community at large, the community in which they belong to. So the idea is that, of course, individuals who behave nepotistically help their relatives or their close allies, and in doing so, they benefit themselves. Because sometimes nepotistic behavior occurs at the expense of quality. So when hires at the university occur through nepotistic mechanisms, sometimes it's not the best candidate who is hired for a job, but simply the one who had the right family connections. As a result, the overall quality, for example, of the research or the teaching goes down. But it seems like a gigantic collective action problem because if I'm a, if I'm a professor who got my job, not on merit, but on connections, when I go to the doctor, I want that doctor to have gotten his or her job through quality and not through connections. So I'd like nepotism to be eliminated everywhere except in the areas where it helps me, right? Yeah. If we just looked at medical practice, then I think a nepotistic system would be less likely to evolve and be successful because in the end, like you said, what matters is whether doctors are able to save lives, are able to provide the right treatment for diseases and so on. But if you consider the university instead, where the outcomes of people's activities and efforts are, are not decisions about life or death or treatment for diseases, but essentially their productivity, the quality of their teaching, their research accomplishments. So the standards are less strict. So if there are bad teachers or bad researchers in a university is not as harmful as if there are bad doctors in a hospital. Now, you would argue that in a capitalist system, in a competitive system, if a university competes with other university, the nepotistic university is going to lose out because nepotism will lower the quality of the university. The other university was less nepotistic will be more successful. So you wonder, how is it that Italian universities have managed to maintain these nepotistic dynamics if they compete in a global system where there are other universities, for example, in other countries, there are less nepotistic. That, just by competitive mechanisms alone, this should drive nepotism out of the system. The reason why the Italian academic system has continued to be nepotistic is that it has isolated itself. So, for example, from other countries. So, Italian universities often don't engage in direct competition for productivity, for resources with other countries. They essentially, they've given up in some ways. So for example, they understand that the US or other European countries have far more resources than they do, better people, better everything. So what's the point in competing with them? So they stopped investing or stopped thinking that producing more quality is, is the way to, to succeed. So they basically say, okay, they do their own thing and we do our own. So by isolating themselves, they are able to maintain the system, which benefits the individuals at the expense of the community. But because the community is um, isolated, doesn't really engage in competition, that's how the system is maintained. One of the things that you talk about in your book is how these mechanisms are kind of operating in, in the background and, and they can give rise to feelings of anxiety, for instance. So when you enter the elevator, you can be anxious because you don't know exactly. I mean, you don't honestly believe that someone's going to physically assault you in the elevator necessarily, but you still have this anxiety over where you sit in relationship to that person. 
So in places where the hierarchies are more stable, so presumably in Italy, fairly early on, whether you're someone who's connected or not connected, and it's not likely to change as much as it may, say, in a more meritocratic or, or mobile society, which one of these is more likely to lead to anxiety? I mean, a world where we're, we're continuously appraising our status with all of these random encounters with strangers that happen on a daily basis, or a world where, you know, we wake up and we see the same people that we've seen over our entire lifetime. We know exactly where everybody fits. And is the constant fighting for status that's ongoing in, in a world that's a little bit more mobile, is that generally conducive to a happier life? Or is it is the opposite true? Well, competition for a species like our own is probably inevitable. So there'll always be hierarchies in all human societies. The only thing that would make hierarchies and status competition disappear for good would be an ideal situation in which there is an abundance of resources so that everybody gets what they want. So unlimited resources, unlimited freedom, unlimited mobility in society. Obviously, this is not realistic, but competition would only disappear in a situation in which there's no need to compete because there's plenty for everyone. So because this is unrealistic and because, in fact, we're moving in the opposite direction where the resources are becoming more scarce, competition will only intensify. Now, fighting is just one way to compete. There are other competitive strategies that do not involve physical fighting. For example, there's some research that suggests women use slightly different competitive strategies than men do. For example, among young girls, the probability that a girl will pick a fight with another girl that she doesn't like is lower than between boys. So there's research that suggests that girls and women are more likely to compete with one another using verbal aggression or indirect aggression. For example, attacking somebody's reputation indirectly through gossip or trying to harm another individual's personal connections, friendships, network, and so on and so forth. So there are different strategies that vary in relation to gender in this case, but also the environment. So what I've noticed, because you mentioned Italy and other countries, is that the way hierarchies are expressed and manifest themselves is a little different, for example, in Italian universities and American universities. I first thought, oh, that American universities are less hierarchical than Italian universities. And then I realized that that's not the case. American universities are as hierarchical as Italian university, but the way the hierarchy is expressed is different. And this is probably for, for cultural reasons. So in Italy, power, including academic power, the power of the big professors, what they call the baroni, is really handled with, with arrogance. So it's made very clear all the time who has the power and what having this power entails. So things are clear. So the student knows from day one that the professor has much higher status, that that has implications for the way they talk, for the way, for example, the student can make requests or being friendly or, or not friendly with the professor and so on and so forth. Things are clear, things are out in the open, all cards are on the table. Whereas in American universities, things are a little more subtle because American culture and society is generally much more informal than Italian and European societies, that there is less arrogance, there is less rigid rules to regulate interactions. So powerful people make others feel at ease. They almost try to, to hide this power. They think it's bad that you show this power too obviously. So informality is a mechanism by which even low status, young, weak individuals are made feel comfortable. For example, professors in America, universities are much more approachable and more easily approachable than professors in the European university. Now that does not mean that there's less of a hierarchy. The hierarchy is still there. The way to see it is that you have to test the system. So if you don't do anything, you say, well, maybe the hierarchy is not there. But if you actually challenge, if you're an American student and you interpret this informality with your professor as a sign that, oh, there's no status difference. And you try to impose your own will on the professor, you will see that's not the case, that the professor will still have the power and that being informal and tolerant and friendly and nice has nothing to do with power and who makes the decisions. So the hierarchy is still there. It's just the same. 
except that it's expressed in different ways. I like your analogy between small talk and grooming, right? You refer to it as verbal grooming. And you also have this wonderful story where you talk about an email exchange that you have with a student and liken it to a grooming exchange between kind of a dominant and a subordinate primate. So obviously we don't spend a whole heck of a lot of time picking bugs off each other and eating them, but we spend an awful lot of time talking and emailing with one another. How do we make sense of, of verbal grooming? Can we tell very quickly from a verbal interaction or a written interaction kind of what the status hierarchy is and how can we kind of use communication as a way of forming these bonds, de-escalating conflict and so forth? Yeah, you can definitely make inferences from the way two people talk to each other, either directly or via email. You can make inferences about status differences between these two individuals. But even before hearing any talk, any verbal communication, if you are observing two individuals talking to each other, but from a distance where you cannot hear what they're saying, you can tell who's dominant and who's not just by the way they look at each other. So visual attention, even before verbalization, is an indicator of status relationships. This is something that was actually first demonstrated in monkeys, in groups of monkeys, where some scientists started recording where every monkey was looking at. So by following the gaze of a particular monkey, they were able to record whether most monkeys were looking, for example, at the alpha male or alpha female or the ones right above. It turns out that you can build a very stable, linear, predictable hierarchy just by looking behavior. So just by attention. The idea being that low status individuals pay more attention to high status individuals. You could argue, for example, that when a high status person is talking to a low status person, the low status person is, is more likely to pay attention to make eye contact than the others. So the high status person might maybe talk, but look in another direction. So not pay attention. That when it comes to talking, yes, you could say it's a form of verbal grooming in the sense that sometimes you talk because you have something to say to someone, but sometimes you talk to someone just because you want to be nice to that person. So it's not what you're saying, but how you're saying it, or also the act of talking. The idea being that if two individuals in, engage in friendly conversation, regardless of what the content of the conversation is, it's an indicator that they have a good relationship. So that they're friends. So communicating with others, engaging in conversations. For example, if you go to a party where you don't know anybody, you start talking with people, not because all of a sudden you have the urge to tell these people that you don't know that you never met before some important things that had been on your mind, but you know, you're trying to assess the situation. Are these people my friends? Are they enemies? Can I make some alliances? Can they be nice to me in the future? All these things. So it's a way to sort of probe the ground and see if there's something in common, if there is a potential for a friendship, for a collaboration, for an alliance. The problem with words, as you know, is that they're cheap. So it's not so much what you say with particular words, because you might say things that you don't mean. Anybody can say anything. It's more like the effort that you make with your communication and the type of communication. So the example of the email was that the person, the student, who's using emails as a form of verbal grooming with the professor, it's not so much what the student is saying in these emails, but the fact that the student writes these very long emails showing that he or she cares about the relationship with the professor, that he or she's very careful about the way these emails are written. If the student replies immediately to the professor's email, that shows that the student is respectful, that he or she cares. Imagine if you, wrote an email to the student and the student replied after a week or two weeks, what conclusions would you draw? That the student is not respectful, that it's not interested, motivated. So there are ways in which you communicate. They're independent of the content of the communication, but that have more to do with the speed of the communication, how quickly you respond, uh, the tone of the communication, which signal aspects of the relationship that are very important. I'm wondering if you had thoughts on how this move to online work has changed people's behavior in the workplace with respect to forging alliances and grooming one another, because without the physical interaction, it's much harder to 
sort out that relationship. I, obviously, you know, the way in which we communicate with words can do much of the job, but we can't even tell if we're kind of looking at each other in the eye when we're on this Zoom call. And then the idea of spending all this time engaging in non-work-related alliance forging, which is what so many people do at the workplace, right? Just getting together with people, having lunch with them, talking about their dogs and so forth, and basically building relationships that they can tap into when it comes time for promotion or whatever. Since those things are more difficult, how does that change the nature of advancement and the building of power within organizations? Is it going to mean that organizations are more meritocratic? If we think of meritocratic as being an alternative to Machiavellian career advancement. I think internet-based communication, so it's not just emails, but communication through social media, through Facebook and the likes, blogs and things like that, has really influenced the general dynamics of competition and cooperation in human societies. So when you compete with one another because a particular individual is your enemy or stands in the way of your success and so forth, typically you want to do something maybe harmful to this individual, but there are costs involved in attacking an individual openly or, or engaging in harmful behavior. So people are restrained because they don't want to incur these costs. One change that internet-based communication has brought about is anonymity. So using internet-based communication, you can attack others, your enemies, and remain anonymous. So that essentially reduces dramatically or eliminates completely the costs of aggression. So by striking in anonymity, you prevent others from either the victim, the target of your attack, or anybody else to sanction you for your antisocial behavior. So that actually facilitates more what we might call Machiavellian behavior, because it, it means that you can, if you're someone who's interested in using conflict to advance your career, it's easier to do this without encountering resistance. Right. So aggressive competition is a very simple business. There's not something mysterious about it. So there are benefits and costs. The benefits of being aggressive is that you obtain that as a resource or whatever you want. The cost is that you get punished, particularly if your aggressive behavior is criminal or you break some laws or anything like that. Anonymity is almost completely wipes out the costs. So you have a situation where all of a sudden you get all benefits and no costs. In my book, I use the example of the blackout in New York City in 1977 that made the, the cover of Time magazine. So an entire section of New York City was left in the dark for 24 hours. And so that resulted in widespread looting, violent crime, shooting, and so on and so forth. All of a sudden, the benefit of antisocial criminal behavior were there and there were no costs. A lot of people who committed crimes that night were people without a criminal record, were essentially people who took the opportunity of engaging in highly selfish behavior without paying the costs. So that's one big difference that anonymity associated with the internet has brought about. So people say, oh, people are so mean on the internet. Yeah, because they don't pay the price. They don't get punished for doing that. You mentioned peer review as a process that's anonymous, or at least I guess it's semi-anonymous. And so this can lead to some bad behavior as well. Yeah, again, there are reasons why peer review is anonymous, but it's not a perfect system. And sometimes, unfortunately, the cover anonymity leads some people to be a little too selfish or not as professional as they should be. But I want to add one more thing about the issue of how internet-based communication has changed our social dynamics, not just about competition, but it's also about cooperation. Before the advent of internet-based communication, to make an alliance, to convince others to be your supporter, you would have to engage in one-on-one -on -one communication, invest personally, take people out to dinner, make donations to their projects. The internet allows people to make instant alliances. For example, by posting on a blog something that you know will generate outrage in an entire group of people. So that will instantly gain you a huge alliance. So you're essentially pitching an entire group of people against another one, and you can reach millions of people instantly. So bloggers who have thousands of millions of followers have this 
incredible power because they can instigate mobbing essentially, which has a harmful effect on the victim, but has a positive effect on the instigator because that instigator will make instantly a lot of alliances, which might result useful in the future. So the instant communication, the fact that you can immediately reach thousands, if not millions of people has huge implications for alliance formation and for cooperation. Well, speaking of alliances, you spent some time in, in the book, Games Primate Play, on romance, love, pair bonding. And so marriage could be characterized as sort of a frenemy relationship in so many ways. And you really kind of tackle this whole idea of the emotions and what purpose the emotions serve, in particular, romantic love. And I found it interesting that you made the argument that attachments, romantic attachments, have their origins or roots in the attachments that people have for their offspring or for animals have for their offspring. Could you walk us through that discussion about pair bonding? Because it's, it is, well, humans are notorious for pair bonding as opposed to our fellow primates. Yeah. So humans are a type of mammal and what humans share with many other species of mammals is that infants are born very vulnerable. They depend on their caregivers, their parents, and especially the mothers for survival. So unlike other species in which the young are born almost independent, for example, they, they can walk by themselves, they can almost feed themselves. In humans, the baby is very dependent on the parent. So natural selection has produced a system of motivations, emotions, behavior that ensures that the human baby becomes attached to the caregiver that he or she depends on. And this attachment system in the infant or child takes the form of, for example, separation anxiety. When a young child is separated from mother or father, becomes anxious, starts to cry, and so on and so forth. So this attachment system exists also in other species of mammals. And complementary to the infant attachment system, there is also a parental attachment system that and make sure that the parent is sufficiently motivated to care for a vulnerable infant. Now, people have noticed that the attachment relationships that adults form with one another, particularly in the context of romantic relationships, shares many similarities with the mother or father-child attachment. So for example, adult couples, they have very strong bonds. They get anxious when they're physically separated. At reunion, they show all of their affection. They feel insecure when they're not in the presence of their partner. So there's a series of mechanisms that regulate the relationship that are very similar to the mother, the parent-child relationship. So one idea is that natural selection has co-opted the system that was already there to play an important role between parent and child and has used it for another secondary role, which is attachment between uh, adults. Why that has happened has to do again with the need for people to be motivated to maintain a relationship. So sexual attraction, you could argue, is not enough to keep two people together. If sexual attraction is the only thing that, that brings two individuals together, you should ask, you know, what prevents these people from just having quick interactions, transient interactions, and, and not spend any time together after that, right? So there has to be something more. There has to be something that motivates individuals to stay together above and beyond their sexual attraction, their sexual behavior, which may be as great as, as you want, but one could argue is still insufficient. So one theory about the evolution of love is that this feeling has evolved. And in my opinion, is unique to humans. In my opinion, other animals don't have any type of feeling that closely resembles human love. This emotion has evolved to motivate people to stay together. So people who like each other, who are mutually sexually attracted, who have many interests in common, who even from a rational point of view, they see the benefits of forming a joint partnership. All of this would not be sufficient if there wasn't also some emotional energizer. So the way I explain emotions in my book is that emotions exist because they energize motivation. So to be motivated to avoid a danger, to be uh, motivated to avoid something harmful is not enough. You have to be scared. So fear has evolved to enhance the motivation to avoid things that are bad for you. So understanding and realizing that some things are bad for you 
is not sufficient to make sure you will avoid them. But the emotion of fear, panic is there to make sure that you will do the right thing, which is stay away from danger and threat all the time. Now, you mentioned this idea of like a team player. That seems to be also an emotional thing, right? I mean, a team player is somebody who's not constantly engaging in real-time cost-benefit analysis, right? A team player is someone who kind of makes a commitment to a relationship, an organizational relationship, and is can be counted on and, and relied on by the leader. And organizations value these team players. How does that work? And, and how do we know if this commitment is real? You talk a bit about bond testing, and bond testing happens in romantic relationships. It also happens in business <laughs> relationships to the extent that all primates have business relationships, right? They have the alliances and they're always being tested. So to what extent are the alliances that are formed between non-romantic partners similar to the bonds that are formed by romantic partners and motivated by emotion rather than calculus? So evolutionary biologists who study behavior make a very useful and important distinction between function and mechanism. The function is more like the outcome of a particular interaction or a behavior, whereas the mechanism is what produces that behavior in the first place. So if an individual chooses to cooperate, let's say a person has the option of either cooperating or not cooperating, that's an outcome. So being a team player, being reliable in cooperating with others is essentially a description that your behavior has a positive net effect on others. But you say nothing about the motives that underlie this behavior. Now, the same behavior, being a team player, can produce by very different motives. You can have, for example, people who, who are team players and cooperators out of the goodness of their heart because they're very genuinely good-natured, generous, empathetic people. So they do it because that's the way they feel, because they know that's what makes them happy. There are individuals who maybe don't have this feeling of happiness when they behave in a cooperative manner, but they have a very strong moralistic attitude. So they do it because it's the right thing to do. So they just play by the rules, even though maybe their inclination would be not to play by the rules, but they committed to these rules. There are others who behave cooperatively because it's cost-effective to do so. They might not be people who are naturally generous or spontaneously good, or they might not be even moral people. They might be Machiavellian people who understand the costs and the benefits, and they, in a particular situation, estimate that the benefits of being cooperative. So these are all different mechanisms. So let's say the leader of an organization, and you have individuals under you who cooperate, who apparently play for the team, it's important to understand why they do it. If they do it out of pure calculation, these are individuals who, if the circumstances change, if that cost to benefit ratio changes so that all of a sudden the cost of being cooperative become greater than the benefits, the leader knows he cannot count on those people anymore. So their cooperative behavior is contingent upon conditions that make it beneficial for them. As long as you keep that ratio positive, as long as the benefits are greater than the cost, you can count on those individuals. But if that ratio changes, you cannot. Whereas uh, subordinates who do it just out of the goodness of their heart or because they're very moral people, you can count on them in a more stable, predictable, long-term kind of a way. So a good leader has to be a good observer of behavior, but also a good psychologist. So you really need to understand what drives a person's behavior, their emotions, their motivation, their moral principles, their rational calculations. A lot has to do with their personality. I recommend to any leader of any organization to study personality and try to understand the personalities of the individuals on your team, because that's a predictor of the motives that people use to engage in particular behaviors. Well, Darryl, in your book, you mentioned the little dance between publishers and authors, and you mentioned that there's now an increased demand for books that translate academic insight into practical day-to-day -day useful knowledge. And, and I'm wondering, is your, is your next effort going to be a how-to book for managers or for lovers? It seems like the natural outgrowth from your work. Yeah, but it's been done before. Many of those books are already out there. I'm more interested in... Uh, understanding the principles. I'm more interested in 
the theory, understanding why and how things are the way they are. It's not that I don't care about the implications of my knowledge. I, I make my knowledge available to others and even suggest the way this knowledge can be used, but you can't do everything yourself. So I see my strength in doing the research and producing the knowledge. I don't consider one of my strengths to be a person who applies the knowledge. Of course I, I do it and I'm happy to, to help others. You know, I do it all the time with my students, but I'm not entirely comfortable for example, giving practical advice to people to solve their day-to-day -day problems based on the theory or the knowledge. But I would like people to read my books and think that what they read is useful and helpful. So I, I would like my knowledge to be helpful, but I expect my readers to make a little bit of an effort. So I'm not interested in spoon feeding others to the point of telling them very practically, okay, so here's what you do. Number one, number two, number three. I'm not interested in that. <laughs> you can spoon feed them, but don't work their jaws for them. In this book, you'll learn a whole lot more about what happens when you throw macaques into a cage with one another. You'll learn about what happens when people jump into uh, elevators with one another in Hyde Park, presumably. You'll learn also about eye poking and testicle grabbing which I don't recommend that you try in, in the workplace, but you can learn what purpose they serve out in the wild with primates. Games Primates Play, also Machiavellian Intelligence, both fantastic books. Thank you so much, Dario, for joining me. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.